Hello and welcome to Cocoa Pods. My name is Dr. Bola Sagade. I'm a women's healthcare specialist. Cocoa Pods is a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. We talk about all the issues that can affect women in and around pregnancy and how we can make these issues better. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Dr. Joseph Poku. Dr. Poku is a clinical cardiac electrophysiologist at the Georgia Arrhythmia Consultants and Research Institute. He has been in practice since 2003. He is a graduate of Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts, where he graduated Phi Beta Kappa with honors in mathematics, biochemistry, and molecular biology. He obtained his medical degree at Tufts University School of Medicine, where he received the Martin J. Leon Prize for Academic Achievement. Dr. Poku completed his internship and residency at Duke University Medical Center, where he served as assistant chief resident. He completed his training with fellowships at the University of Pennsylvania in cardiovascular diseases and clinical electrophysiology, where he received numerous accolades, including Cardiology Fellows Excellence Abstract Award and Ruth Kirsten NIH Research Training Grant. Dr. Poku, welcome and thank you for coming to Cocoa Pods. Thank you for having me, Dr. Sagadi. You are a clinical electrophysiologist and this topic I think you can help us with. Pregnant women experience dizziness that could be due to a lot of things, but at times it could be due to a cardiac cause of dizziness. What are some of the cardiac causes of dizziness? Sure, and that's a very important complaint that pregnant women could have. Dizziness could mean many things. It could strike from someone that's just being lightheaded all the way to someone that actually feels that their head is swimming. The first distinction that at least we make as clinicians when we see someone like that is to truly talk to them and really understand what dizziness actually means because dizzy could be different for different people. The most important thing, though, is that anytime that there are changes in blood pressure, anytime that you have any fast or any very slow heart rhythm could cause dizziness. And so as a, a cardiac electrophysiologist, uh, simply put that I'm a cardiologist, but my main interest is really in heart arrhythmias. And so from a heart arrhythmia standpoint, uh, dizziness could be a result of cardiac rhythm disturbances. Specifically in pregnancy, one of the things that you see is that just with the changes that occurs with pregnancy, most patients that actually are prone to having arrhythmias, they tend to see an ex exacerbation of their symptoms during pregnancy. And pregnancy may actually represent the first time that, that someone may actually come to see a cardiologist for symptoms of, of dizziness. As you all are aware, in pregnancy, there's multiple physiologic things that take place. There's an increase in volume because you have to live for two people. One of the most devastating things that I've noticed in my practice really has to do with people that are just prone to passing out, or what we use the term syncope. And, and this is really just typical fainting spells. And one of the things that we tend to notice in, in pregnancy is that People that actually have are prone to fainting actually tend to faint more when they become pregnant, and it becomes a, an important thing that we really need to help them through. 
Wow, wow. Thank you so much about that. So there's also a sensation, you know, women can have a sensation of their heart fluttering mm -hmm. or their heart beating pa uh, fast, what we describe as palpitation. How is that different from dizziness and how can both of them, how do they really present differently and what can we do? Sure. Yeah. I think all both of these are actually related, which is, you know, we use the term palpitations just thinking that it's the heart that's beating or, you, or, or palpitations, simply put, is just a funny feeling in, in the heart. And the problem is that women, by and large, tend to have the most atypical way of actually presenting with, with heart complaints, which we, I mean, as cardiologists, we treat heart disease and when people are having heart attacks, unfortunately, I think a lot of the description or a lot of the terms that they actually teach us in medical school tends to be related primarily to men. The person that wakes up with a crash in her chest pain is unfortunately not what you see with women. And so any sensation that women actually feel inside the heart or inside the chest should actually be taken seriously. Now, sometimes some, some people may just be simply short of breath, but coming to the question of palpitations, you could have different cardiac rhythm disturbances. And we, like I said, we treat arrhythmias. The most common cardiac arrhythmia is something we call atrial fibrillation that you could see that, that's the, the, in all adults. But that being said, within the pregnancy uh, age category, by and large, when they have a sensation in their chest, it's typically something relatively more benign than say atrial fibrillation but and when it comes to some of the more serious lines we tend to classify what happens in the chest in relation to what happens in the upper chamber of the heart versus what happens in the lower chamber of the heart things that happen in the lower chamber of the heart could be very lethal uh, things that happen in the upper chamber of the heart although it could bug you a lot may not necessarily be lethal so we talk about supraventricular arrhythmias and ventricular arrhythmias. And so if a pregnant woman should come up with palpitations, I think the first thing that we, st we start by doing is to give them a simple monitor just to see what we find on the monitor, because that could mean a lot of things. Luckily, these days, I think a lot of people have wearables. And so there's quite a few people that may actually come with you to the office with a wearable already, and that may be a clue. But that being said, Monitoring really is sort of the start. We do Holter monitors, which are things that you wear for almost 24 hours, and we can review it beat by beat, and all your heartbeats over a 24-hour period is captured. Then we have what we call event monitors, where we basically have you wear something, and if you feel the palpitation, you could trigger it or push a button, and it could record anything that happened 30, uh, you know, 30, uh, 30 minutes before to three minutes after. And in that way, we can actually capture what you're feeling. And as, as I mentioned, depending on what we find, are you having a premature beat from the upper chamber of the heart, which we'll call premature atrial contraction, or are you having a premature beat from the bottom chamber of the heart, which we will call a premature ventricular contraction? Those are pr relatively common, but the most common arrhythmias are actually supraventricular tachycardias. We call them SVTs. And these actually tend to manifest in most people, in fact, for the first time while they're pregnant. And in this case, your heart actually beats very, very fast. A normal heart rate is somewhere between 60 and 100 beats per minute. 
And depending on your age, once your heart rate goes above 130s, 140s, 160s, when you're not doing anything, that becomes a problem. And so, you know, going back to the question of palpitation, it could be a representation of a host of things, uh, a host of cardiac rhythm disturbances. But let me just step back and just talk about my role as a cardiologist, because it's important. I know uh, my training was first in cardiology, then, then now the cardiac electrophysiology part then becomes a tag onto it. Mm. There are certain risk factors that we actually look for in cardiac disease in pregnant women. And that actually precedes the pregnancy, hopefully. But once you're pregnant, you you have to kind of look for those risk factors where the things, you know, so anyone that's had heart failure before, if they've had heart failure class two or higher, that's typically problematic. People that have a low ejection fraction, which in this case, people with weakened heart muscles, but more importantly, people that have had congenital heart disease, because these days we actually have a lot of people with congenital heart disease that actually are living pretty long. That may also come to the point of actually getting to the point of having babies. And therefore, that's something that uh, we need to know. People that have genetic, other genetic abnormalities such as Marfan syndrome. But more commonly, as a heart physician, if a woman was about to get pregnant, we have to kind of give them the yay and the nose of, of why they ought to get pregnant. And from the heart standpoint... Typically, problems from the left side of the heart, things that lead to blockages are what we use the term stenosis. So the stenotic lesions on the, on, the, on the left side of the heart, specifically if you have what we call mitral stenosis or you have aortic stenosis, those things are typically incompatible with pregnancy or it's actually relatively difficult. And so by starting... I think we can actually risk stratify uh, just from a sort of a, a heart disease overall. Have they had congenital heart disease before? And if so, do they have any of these lesions in the heart that would actually make them not a great candidate to get through pregnancy? And it's really interesting because if you look at this pregnancy score in cardiovascular disease, it's if you have one score, you're, if you just have one point, just one of all these things that I've mentioned, if you just have one point, your risk of, of something lethal in pregnancy is almost 25%. By the time that you have more than two points, we're upwards of uh, you know 50 to about 75%. So just having one of what I just mentioned is actually problematic and typically would need attention. To come specifically to my specialty, which is heart arrhythmias, I certainly have seen women that have had supraventricular tachycardias. And the question is, because you're not living for one person, any medication that we use to treat you can also affect your child or the baby. And so there are scenarios and medications that we use to help monitor, to help treat the mother and just that we need an OBGYN or what we call somebody in maternal fetal medicine to help us monitor the baby just so we can take care of the mother's heart while we're not, we're not hurting the baby. Well, so just to recap, you know, you talked about things that like women should not get pregnant or pregnancy can be very difficult or could lead to death if they have this condition. And you said even having maybe one of this condition confers a score of 25 out of 100. And when they have two, the score increases. Can you just make it clear to us what these conditions are again? Sure. So specifically... Certainly someone that has what we call pulmonary hypertension, 
someone that has Marfan syndrome, and then on the left-sided valves, if you have mitral stenosis with a valve area that's small, or if you have aortic stenosis, if you have uh, an ejection fraction that's less than 40%, or you have symptoms of heart failure, which is New York Heart cl Class 2 or higher. So, so any one of these at all actually puts you right about 25% risk. All right. So pulmonary hypertension, that is high blood pressure in the lungs. Exactly. And that, that could present with shortness of breath also. I yeah. mean, how, how, how would a woman know she has pulmonary hypertension? I think in that age category, and yeah. now we're talking about severe pulmonary hypertension. I don't want to make the sort of the sense that because because we have a lot of testing available these days and people can easily go get an echo, the fact that somebody mentioned is pulmonary hypertension doesn't necessarily mean that you can't have a child. There is a way that we classify how tight the hypertension is. If the blood pressure and the and the blood vessels to the lung is incredibly high, and we use what we call the Woods unit to make that classification. And so if you were about a, a Woods 6 or higher, then I think you get a score for that. Mm. But women that are below that certainly can still. So the fact that you have the condition labeled doesn't necessarily mean mm -hmm. that you can't have, that, that you're at high risk, but we need to measure the pressure. So just like how we check your blood pressure, if your blood pressure is 120 or less, that's fine. In fact, there's, there's some people might argue that we probably want to get as low as maybe 110 and lower. However, if your blood pressure is above 170, that's clearly problematic. And then if you're 220 or 200s, then we're talking about severe problem. So if you're talking about blood pressure with the blood vessels within the lungs, it's the same classification, I'd say, we, we measure what we call the, the vascular resistance is as to how well these, these vessels can actually stretch. And we do that based on something we call the Woods unit. And the folks that have six Woods or higher are the ones that are actually at the highest risk. And that's for pulmonary hypertension. The next thing then just has to do with your ejection fraction. Which is the amount of blood that is flowing out of the heart. Well, you know, sometimes it's it's pretty hard to say if the, the amount of blood that's actually flowing. It's it's really how well the heart squeezes, and unfortunately, that number of times has could become subjective. But the main thing that I, I think people need to understand, we're just looking at how well the heart is squeezing, okay? And you know, what is heart failure? Well, heart failure is a condition of the heart where you really can't pump enough to meet your daily metabolic your daily metabolic demands. And so your ejection fraction is not necessarily the only thing because that's in what we would call in our language systole. Mm -hmm. So people that have systolic dysfunction is really people that really can squeeze well. Well, but you can also get heart failure because your heart can't relax, which we call diastolic. So these days we've kind of sort of the language has changed. So we could, you know, we, we, we talk about patients that can have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and heart failure with patients with reduced ejection fraction. And this calculated number, typically, if that number is above 50, we generally assume, we generally believe that the heart is squeezing well. If, the, if it's somewhere between 40 and 50, it's mildly abnormal. If it's between 30 and 40, it's moderately abnormal. And anything below 30 is actually quite severe. For the purposes of pregnancy, anyone that has an EF less than 40 
that in and of itself could be problematic. That would still would give you a score of one just because you have that change in the contractility or the muscle strength of your heart, if you want to think of it that mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's a whole host of people with heart failure with preserved ejection fractions, which we just haven't studied well enough. In fact, mm-hmm. even within adults, even when we're talking just non-pregnant people, there are still people that are short of breath. But if you do an echo, the EF is completely normal, but they have still, still, still the classic signs of heart failure. They're short of breath. They have, you know, they have edema. And the legs. And the legs. Mm-hmm. They have orthopnea. They can lay flat. You know, they could barely walk from here to the door, you know, 10 yards. And so the ejection fraction and those people may still look normal and yet they still have symptoms of heart failure. So that's why I'd like to be very, very clear yeah. and very clear. But clearly if you have systolic dysfunction or, mm. or heart failure symptoms with your ejection fraction being reduced, right. in which case we use the echo criteria, then by all means that, that would give you a, f- a full point. So that's, that's, that's the ejection fraction story. Now, sticking to the echo. The echo is the ultrasound, ultrasound that we use, we use sure. to, to diagnose heart conditions. Yeah. Right, right, right. So sticking to the ultrasound, yeah. the ultrasound of the heart. So, so on the ultrasound of the heart, you can actually look at the valves. And at times, I th- you, know, I, you know, sometimes I think we overemphasize technology in the sense that a lot of this just starts by being a very, very good doctor and listening to your patients and talking to your patients and examining your patients. What do I mean by that? So there's lesions that are very, very bad can actually be picked up on physical exam. And so even in a, in a low resource part of the world, you could still pick up a mitral stenosis. You could still pick up an aortic stenosis. Mitral stenosis is a tightening of a valve on the, on the left side of the, of the heart. And a lot of this actually used to happen as a result of rheumatic fever. In this part of the world, rheumatic fever has pr- probably has been gone for the, like, the last 50 years. And so it's actually rare to see people that were born in the U.S., say, after 1960, that would present with mitral stenosis. However, because we're a land of immigrants, you have to keep that in mind. And so if you see people come from Africa, South America, and all these other places... You still, there's still quite a good bit of young people that may still come in with mitral stenosis as a result of a rheumatic, of, of rheumatic, rheumatic heart disease. So, yeah. but in the US, what would yeah. be the number one cause of the valve, that mitral valve being thickened? Because if it's not rheumatic fever, what is the reason that would happen to somebody that was born and bred in the United States? So at least for the, for the valve in the aortic region, it, it typically would have been if they had like a, a congenital abnormality of the valve itself. And then over time, it got tight. So they were so, born, born. Exactly. So, yeah. so, the, so if, you take your, if you take, for instance, your aortic valve, your aortic valve has three leaflets. And some people are just born with two of them. So we say, you know, your aortic valve should be tricuspid in nature, which means you should have three little, three leaflets, three in little the leaflets in the yeah. inside. The folks that are born with two leaflets, obviously over time, can actually develop severe mitral stenosis. Yeah. I'm sorry, a, a severe aortic stenosis. stenosis. But like I said, the incidence of, of mitral stenosis, at least in the U.S., is, is going down, has gone down just because of rheumatic fevers. But because of immigration... 
you know, if you're running a you, you, you just have to know the population that you're treating. So, you know, if I was treating someone coming from the Caribbean, coming from Mexico, coming from Africa, that's something to keep in mind. And and those murmurs are not, if they're that bad, they're typically easy to hear and easy for you to go the next step. So I think basically just in summary, what mm -hmm. you are saying is that if a woman had out there has weak heart muscles, mm -hmm. you have heart murmur, you feel excessive shortness of breath, your legs are swollen, mm -hmm. or your joints are mm -hmm. just hypermobile, mm -hmm. your joints are too loose, and mm -hmm. you can stretch things backwards like in Marfan syndrome, syndrome, make sure you see your cardiologist or your primary care provider before you attempt a pregnancy, pregnancy. because these conditions could be very dangerous in pregnancy. Exactly. Thank you for that clarification. So before we move on, I just wanted to ask, is there a link between abnormal heart rhythms mm -hmm. and the baby? How, how can you diagnose like a growing baby? So if a mother has abnormal heart rhythm, could her baby also have an abnormal heart rhythm? How can you diagnose this in, in a growing fetus? You know? Sure. In a growing fetus, essentially, their hearts are small, but... They compensated by being fat, fast. Fast, in the, in <laughs> and, the baby. In the baby. Yeah. And so a normal fetal heart rate anywhere between 110 and you know, 160 beats is probably completely no. normal in, in, in a baby. Whereas uh, in an adult, it's about adult, that's 60, 60 to, to about 100. Yeah. The problem is that there are certain genetic conditions. So let's talk about fast, then we'll talk about slow. Okay. <laughs> so on the fast end of things, I don't think there is any clear genetic transmission of you having a fast rhythm and then transmitting that to your child. You know, we have uh, what we call the Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, which a, a mother could have, where your heart can also beat very fast. Let me just step back and tell you about how the heart works. <laughs> if you think about the heart, the heart is really a pump that's driven by electricity. The electricity is supplied from the top part of the heart. It travels through the middle part, then to the bottom chamber. The middle part of the heart is what we call the AV node. The bottom chamber is what we call the ventricle. So this electrical wiring, they need to be in sync. Everything that goes from the top goes through the middle toll booth and goes to the bottom. There's a one-to-one -one relationship between the top and the bottom. There are people that are actually born with extra connections or extra, what we call them, pathways. And in my mind, I think of those as, as, as extra toll booths. You know, if you were trying to get through a toll, a toll booth and there was a long line, this was before we, everything was electronic. Right. If there was a long line, one toll booth, guess what, what do you do? You try to find the toll booth that goes faster. Well, that's also what happens if you, you could be born with an extra connection and you never would have any problems most of your life till the time of pregnancy when the toll booth gets overloaded because either your heart is beating too fast or you're firing other extra beats from other part of the heart. Well, these extra beats also want to get down. If they want to go down and they can't get down through the main toll booth, they go, what? They bypass it. So we call it a bypass track. They bypass it to another toll booth. And based on what's going, based on timing and rhythm and dance and time is really important. Based on timing, if the, if the stars and the moons align, they can actually go back and spin around back up the fast. So they can go down the slow path, come up the fast. And before you know it, they're just like circling on their own. And that's what drives your heart to go fast. So in a lot of those supraventricular arrhythmias with people that are truly born with extra connections, or what we call pathways, and the term WPW, when we call them by we call them bypass tracks because they are bypassing the normal toll booth, which is the AV node, 
and going down an extra one. Now, having that doesn't could be during pregnancy could actually, you know, become you could actually have more episodes. These things are typically episodic or the paroxysmal, if you want to think of it. They come and they go, <laughs> but it could be very debilitating and the, it becomes a problem if it starts to affect your blood pressure because your blood pressure also affects the flow to the placenta. To the baby. And to the baby. Yeah. And so if the flow to the baby is down and the baby is being compromised, then by all means, we need to do something for treatment. Well, we generally use medications and we normally try to start with medications that would cross the placenta with very limited activity. Unfortunately, the ones that don't cross so well are also usually generally not, not effective. And so typically we might start with, say, a digoxin. And if the digoxin doesn't work, then we kind of graduate to other type of antiarrhythmics. So that's on the fast end. The other things that, you know, if somebody came in acutely and they were going too fast and the baby's heart rate was also being compromised, so the mother is going fast, but unfortunately, the baby is actually going down because they just are not getting enough. Sometimes we may need to do what we call a cardioversion. Where oh, we on, get, the, on the mother, on the mother. Yeah. We may need to shock the mother back into a normal rhythm. So the fact that she's pregnant is not, you have to do what you have to do to save the mom. To save the mom. But yeah. even that, you know, I think sometimes we watch too much television and it's so, it's so sexy on hospital shows to do ACLS <laughs> and for people to scream. Anytime that they, they charge up, they, they scream clear as though that if you touch the person that was being shocked, that you were going to get shocked. In fact, you know, because we shock the heart all the time in my, in my line of work and it's incredibly difficult as far as I can tell, I've never been shocked while I'm holding on to a patient while I'm shocking them. Wow. And this is your profession. This, this is, is what, what I you do, do every day. Every day, exactly. Yeah. And so in general, you know, these these days we have what we call biphasic energy. I'm not going to go into the, the physics, but when we put patches on patients, the shock is really in between the patches. And there are people that are times that when we're cardioverting, we can't get any, any, any energy because of just body habitus. Sometimes like, we actually need to hold on and actually push onto the patch. So and, this and Claire might just be for TV, TV and drama it's, it's, and it's, lack of catching up with exactly, technology it's, of today. It's it's it's, it's over dramatized <laughs> to the to the point where someone might think you're doing something to the, to the child. So it's actually rare for a child. In fact, it's not so much so high energy that we worry about when we shock patients. And the way that we stop the heart, at least electrically is based on timing and low energy. And for those of you that do ACLS, you know, sometimes we tell you to synchronize energies if you're dealing with supraventricular arrhythmias. The reason is that if you actually put a low shock at the time at the most vulnerable period of the heart, that can actually lead to sudden death, what we call ventricular fibrillation. Of the mom. Of the mom. So the way that we induce ventricular fibrillation, at least in the laboratory, in my in the line of work, when we actually are testing to see how, and, and these are for different disease conditions, mm. but the way that we actually create sudden death in the laboratory is actually by shocking with a very low energy. Because if you actually have a, a super high energy, you are actually way above the vulnerable period of the heart. So it's actually rare to go into what we call VF, if you actually shock someone asynchronously 
with a high energy. So if when you are shocking that mom to yes. save her life, like, yeah. the baby is really not at risk from, for, that, from that shock itself. Exactly. Okay. So, okay. The, so, the, so the baby, the baby is not at, at risk. At risk from yeah. that shock. Okay. Yeah. The other things that we also do at times is that obviously, if all of that fails, and I'll give you a good example. This is very early on in my career where we had a patient come in with what we call an atrial tachycardia, which is really a part of the upper chamber of the heart that's firing very, very fast. Cardioversions had failed. The medications that we had given had failed. And so the question then becomes, how else can you stop this tachycardia? Because at that point, I think this lady was actually almost 29 weeks at the time. And the maternal fetal medicine people were still hoping that if we can if the baby can go a little bit longer, that'll be better. Because every day matters. Every, every day, day of maturity matters for the survival of the baby. Exactly. Yeah. And I think I was probably about a year or two out of school. And, you know, we had shocked this lady multiple times. Nothing was working. And so this was someone that we actually had to ablate by, by doing what we call an ablation. And an ablation is really a process by which we insert little catheters inside the heart to cauterize the foci of different arrhythmias. But in this case here, this lady had a tachycardia that was coming from the left upper chamber of the heart. The main concern with doing ablation is that obviously we use x-ray. In today's world, some ablations can actually be done when I was out of school about 20 years ago. So an ablation is Mm -hmm. when you actually put a burn in the heart Mm -hmm. to treat the cause of the abnormal rhythm in the mom. And that's that's what is called an ablation. Ablation, yes. Right. And so after we'd failed medications, thanks for clarifying yeah. that, after we had failed medications and had also exhausted our shocks, because even the shocks weren't getting her, her out, we ended up taking her into the EP laboratory to try to fix the rhythm, in which case we wrapped the belly in lead and we successfully ablated. So you wrap the baby, just the, to pr- pr- protect the pregnant uh, uterus, you wrap the pregnant woman's belly in lead, in and lead. that's to prevent uh, radiation, radiation. X-rays yeah. from getting And that to was 20 years ago. But yeah. these days we have three-dimensional mapping systems where we can actually do what we call completely fluoralized cases. So without radiation? Without radiation. Okay. So I would argue that in some instances, and this would change over time, where medications, and I don't think anyone has actually done, there's been a lot of case reports of people doing fluoroless cases, but I, a fluoroless, a fluoroless cases. Without pregnant, radiation. Without yeah. radiation, in, yeah. in cases without radiation in pregnant women, but I think we probably may need to wait for a, sort of a, a, bigger, a bigger study to come up. But the, we have tools available now with minimal radiation to to, 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 to the fetus. To the yeah. fetus. So right. that's something to keep in mind. Right. Yeah. So but there are other conditions like women with the lupus in which they they can have lupus and then the the mom can have lupus and the baby can have antibodies that can affect the heart rhythm of the baby. And just to say that the heart rhythm rhythm of the baby usually forms at about four months of pregnancy. So by the time a baby is four months old in the in the mom's womb the conduction system that is the electrical system of the heart is already working the baby the whole conduction system is mature by four months so if the mom has lupus that pregnancy is at high risk the baby is at high risk for having abnormal heart rhythm 
right? Yes, you're exactly right. So I think I I, I guess maybe I just I just talk too much, but anyway. no. let me. I was waiting I just got off tangents a little bit, but anyway, let me let me. No, sorry, let me step back. Let me step back and and go back to the fast rhythms again. So we talked about the mother having a fast rhythm, but I think the flip side of that also is that the baby can also now have a fast rhythm and there will be a need for us to treat the baby, to treat the fetus. And so fetal tachycardia, once the fetus has a heart rate, you know, in excess of 180, sometimes over 200 to 220, at times the pediatric cardiologists or the maternal fetal medicine people come to us to help them treat the baby via the mom because the mother has to take the medications for the baby. And again, in general, most people may start with digoxin or, or something of that nature, but if that doesn't work, then you know the, the one antiarrhythmic that actually crosses the placenta actually with high efficiency is actually flecainide. Mm. It actually crosses better than, let's say, an amiodarone or something like that, and so or a sotolol. And so sometimes, depending on who you are trying to treat, you can actually pick the appropriate antiarrhythmic because a lot of these drugs, if you read about them in pregnancy, they kind of fall into two C categories. It doesn't necessarily mean that you don't use them, but you know you could actually give the medication to the mom. The mom will be safe as so long as they're protected. We can get medication to, to the to the fetus. Now coming to the slow rhythms, that's really where your question comes in where, as we said, by 16 weeks, the fetus conduction system is fully formed, which is the question you were asking, is that if the mother had lupus or something of that nature, where they can have some, some type of lupus antibodies that can actually affect the conduction system in the baby. And those are the things that you think about when a, a, fe- when a, when a fetus has a slow heart rate, so fetal bradycardia. Fetal bradycardia can go from instances where the main conduction system, where they can actually have what we, what we call a, a congenital complete heart block. The, the baby the was ba- born with, 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 with heart block. Exactly, with a slow heart. So when we use the term heart block, that we imply is the fact that not everything from the top part of the heart goes through the middle. That middle part of the heart is disease, what we call the AV node or the toll, toll booth that I discussed. It's actually disease. So it's not even unusual for a baby to be born with, with bradycardia or with a slow slow heart rate. And, and certainly looking for some of these lupus antibodies, anti-Rho, anti-LAD, those types of stuff in the mother can actually portend a, a possibility of, of the child actually having uh, a, a slow heart rate. Mm. So, and you probably talked about this before, what is it about pregnancy that puts a woman at a higher risk for an abnormal Heart, heart rate rhythm. or rhythm. rhythm. What is it about pregnancy? Sure. I think sometimes we postulate, and I, I want to be very clear. I mean, we don't necessarily know. We know there are multiple physiologic changes that happens in pregnancy. One for sure is the hormonal change. We all understand that estrogen, for instance, at least at the test tube level, 
if you look at adrenergic receptors and things of that nature, estrogen can actually raise those things. That could potentially be a mechanism. The other thing also is that... So, sorry, and the adrenergic receptors are just proteins in the body that make you excitable? Exci- excitable, exactly. Yeah, things, yeah. That are, things that can make you excitable. So that's what one. The other thing that I think we, we still don't fully understand or we still poorly understand is really the autonomic nervous system our fight and flight response, the regulation of our heart rate, the regulation of our gut. We have all these nerves that do things that I don't think we fully comprehend. I think sometimes we kind of hand wave and say, well, there is some deregulation of the autonomic nervous system probably in pregnancy. The question is, you know, why should that happen? It's, it's unclear. But what we do know for sure are they really the volume changes in pregnancy? It increases. It increases. Mm. And therefore, you know, whenever you increase volume, you're going to increase stretch. If you increase stretch, you can change tissue refractoriness. You can change, you know, you can change characteristics of the electrical properties of the electrical system of the heart. And that might be a driver. And so, simply put, we don't necessarily know, but we know there are contributing factors. So, one is, as I mentioned, the autonomic nervous system. One is the changes in volume and probably hormones also playing a role. Yeah, because some women that, like you said before, that were normal or had small fainting spells before, this could be amplified, amplified because exactly, of pregnancy. Because of pregnancy. pregnancy. And, and even the whole story of fainting, which is what we call you know, vasovagal syncope or neurocardiogenic syncope, you may hear those terms, I think recently there was actually a Jeopardy question about, quote unquote, the Grinch syndrome. I don't know if you actually heard that. It became quite controversial, I guess, in the Twitter world, where there was a paper that was actually done in Jack, you know, a few years back, about four, about four or five years ago. Jack is the Journal, Journal of American, of American College, College of Cardiology, yeah. where some of these electrophysiologists like me actually studied women with this neurocardio women women with neurocardiogenic syncope and they basically measured the size of the hearts they measured they did echoes to look at the the chambers of the heart and then they actually caught them to exercise and what they noticed was that there are other things that we do for autonomic responses and what they noticed was that the women that had all these fainting spells and all these neurocardiogenic things did not really have any differences in their autonomic nervous system as compared to normal healthy women. What they did notice, however, was that the women that were actually, who had all these vasovagal type symptoms, actually had smaller hearts. And so the guy who wrote the paper at the end of the paper said, well, given that None of these autonomic factors actually proved what we had. From this day forward, we're going to say that these women just happen to have small hearts. And so we're going to call it the Grinch syndrome. Wow. And so, <laughs> and so that's how the, the term Grinch syndrome came around. And so the question was that, you know, that maybe using the term Grinch syndrome might be derogatory to the women, you know, that they have small hearts or cold, you know. And so, and so maybe size is actually truly important and that maybe. In my mind, maybe the changes actually in in pregnancy with volume changes probably play a a much bigger role. That is that it's not that their hearts actually get bigger, but their volumes actually 
get higher so the size of the heart is actually too small for the volume changes that actually takes place and that's the blood yeah. volume changes, changes primarily exactly so wow. that if your heart is actually not big enough to hold on to these things that's actually when you actually pass out so based on this one paper mm. that that they were saying that you know that this is not if you actually do autonomic testing there's no difference but really it's it's size size matters so yeah. autom- autonomic <laughs> testing what is layman's Oh, uh, sorry, sure. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, one of the things that we expect at times is that you know we we have measurements. We we expect to see what happens when you jump up, when you go from sitting to standing, where your uh, blood pressure changes ought to be. And for people that can't autonomically deregulate it, so a simple thing such as if you were sitting and you got up to stand and your heart rate should only go up by maybe, you know, five, six points. The people that really can regulate that well, their heart rate can go from 60 from sitting down. As soon as they stand up, it goes up to say 120, which is completely off (laughs) or completely abnormal. And they they actually do feel the symptoms. They feel the heart beating fast. And what I'm, I'm arguing is that based on this paper that, what they're saying is that that these women that we ascribe this diagnosis to are being having these dysautonomias that we really probably ought to pay attention to the size of your hearts. That, in fact, the suggestion is that if you actually exercise, you can actually exercise your way out of a lot of these dysautonomias. Mm-hmm. That is what you need to do is to recondition yourself, which actually makes sense because sometimes. We prescribe exercise. We tell people to try to do more. And again, we're not talking people who go out and lose weight. This is not like people that are obese because your typical pa- patient that's actually prone to fainting is actually a very small size framed woman, not very obese. Not you know, But these are the people that typically have these type of fainting spells and that they probably should actually exercise more because that actually strengthens the heart and that actually also helps regulate your autonomic. You have actually better auto-regulation of your heart just by exercising. Wow, wow. Yeah. So just re- recapping in, in totally layman's stand sure. about this Grinch syndrome, you know, because, yes. I mean, that was so mean for a cardiologist. To, was it, was I, it, it was a cardiologist that I mean, came up with that I, term. I, I bet he wasn't thinking that it was well, going to be connoted as, well, how, you know. Well, here's the deal, though. That paper came out, like I said, that paper came out, but at the time we all read the paper, nothing came of it till it became a question on Jeopardy. Wow. <laughs> on the TV show, the on a TV American show. TV show, Jeopardy. Exactly. It became wow. a question on t- Jeopardy, but right. you you didn't really necessarily need to know about that paper wow. <laughs> to answer the question. question. Wow. And that's when the Grinch syndrome came up, and that's yeah. when it became controversial. But wow. when the paper was written, I don't think there wasn't a single editorial. And I think, you know, a lot of these insensitivities in medicine, which I guess may be another topic for a different time, but at the time, no one said anything. Yeah. Wow. So we have been so fortunate today to have Dr. Joseph Poku on the Cocoa Pods podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Poku. You've shed light on so many topics, so many issues. Personally, you've educated me on so many things, and I'm sure there are so many women out there and men that will glean a lot of information from just our discussion today. So I just want to use this opportunity to thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you.